Sandra Feist, and I am a candidate for the Minnesota House of Representatives in District 41B, which includes New Brighton, St. Anthony, Columbia Heights, and Hilltop. I launched this podcast in order to have conversations with the leaders and members of our community who I respect and wish to learn from. Through these interviews, I hope to enrich my own understanding of the role of a legislator, and also to hear from my friends and neighbors about their goals and priorities for our district and state. I also will share my own perspective and background that I hope to bring to the legislature in 2021. Thanks for listening. I am thrilled to introduce my very first guest to the podcast, Representative Mary Kuneshpudin. Representative Kuneshpudin has served our house district since she was elected in 2016. She is a librarian in the Robbinsdale School District and previously held the role of chair of the New Brighton Parks, Recreation and Environmental Commission. Long before I knew her personally, my husband and I referred to her as the Leslie Nope of New Brighton due to her combination of energy, dedication to local politics and her background with Parks and Recreation. Representative Kunesh Pudin exemplifies the type of legislator that I hope to be, someone who is compassionate, driven, and focused on issues of social justice, and how we can ensure that the state of Minnesota is a place where all communities can live a life of dignity. So without further delay, welcome to the podcast, Representative Kunesh Pudin. Thank you, Sandra. That was um, a beautiful introduction, and um, certainly uh, one that, that um, I think describes me well, and I hope to continue in those veins. So thanks very much. Yeah. Happy to be here. So what accomplishments are you most proud of since you joined the legislature? I would have to um, say that there are a couple of them. Uh, first of all, when I was elected in 2016, I joined two other American Indian legislators. Um, and uh, I and another, uh, Jamie Becker Finn, made up the very first American Indian caucus in the Minnesota State Legislature. We had uh, Susan Allen, uh, who was our first woman uh, American Indian legislator, and then of course, our now Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. And um, we formed the first ever um, coalition to advocate on on behalf of our American Indians. Uh, my family is from Standing Rock and, and I'm familiar with those the issues, the historic trauma and the um, genocide of our American Indian communities uh, and tribes, as well as the disenfranchisement, the intentional disenfranchisement of um, pulling them up by the bootstraps, as they say. That is uh, one of the things that I am most proud of. And then because of that, I um, was empowered to create the task force to study the missing and murdered indigenous women in Minnesota. I had heard uh, the preliminary reports coming out of Canada. And about that time, um, there's a young woman in North Dakota that went missing. Um, they found her in the river and the, the baby that was growing in her womb had been cut out. And I was just so heartbroken and horrified. I thought, well, we have to do this. Why isn't anybody in Minnesota doing that? And then I had this revelation like, whoa, you are a state legislator. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, so that formed within two years, which is quite a, a, a miracle. And then um, 
I guess the other one that really, there's so many, you know, I, I've been fortunate, <laughs> is to the increase for MFIP, um, uh, the financial grants that families who are struggling with. Uh, 25 years ago, I was one of those welfare moms, three kids doing daycare, going to school on the weekends, and I found myself needing the resources that Minnesota provides as a safety net. And um, I, uh, it came to me that, that the amount I was receiving 25 years ago had never been increased. In 30 years, that, that amount had never been increased. So we are expecting families to do more with even less. And so I was able to uh, to get that secure that increase uh, of a hundred dollars a month for our, our families most in need. There's a few others, but I would say I'm off the top of my head those three, as well as um, being a founding member of the Posse Caucus, People of Color Indigenous, uh, where we are making really good legislation through that lens of equity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like all of these really exemplify the ways in which if we have diverse voices in the legislature, uh, we really bring really different perspectives uh, to some of these very specific policy goals. Um, you know, I hope that, you know, my life experience as a mother of two um, in the public school district, um, as an immigration attorney will allow me to have kind of perspective and empathy um, that I will bring to the role of a legislator. Um, but, but yeah, these are all just so amazing. It's, it's really an honor and very daunting to be running for office to step into the role that you have played over these past years. You'll do well. You'll do just fine. Thank you. Um, so moving on to my next question, um, I'd like to take it back to the beginning. Um, and I'd love to know, you know, why did you first decide to run for office? It was sort of a process of, of, of uh, getting to the point where I ran for a public seat. Um, I grew up in a very social-minded uh, family. My parents were both Republicans, but it was a different kind of Republican back in the day. And um, they both had a very strong sense of, of responsibility to make sure that everybody was uh, receiving the, the kind of resources that they needed to succeed. So I grew up in that kind of a, an environment to begin with. Uh, and then um, <clears throat> as I aged and got older and my kids got older, um, we had a lot of conversations around social justice issues. I have two children that are in politics and, and uh, my oldest daughter is an organizer um, with Take Action Minnesota. And it really was her that, kind of moved me into that, that realm of I could run for office and I could make a difference. She had graduated from college and was working as an organizer in Chicago, came back to Minnesota and said, Mom, I'm going to work, I'm going to work on a, a governor's um, campaign. I'm like, well, who, who's, you know, not having had any experience in that area. So long story short, she started working on uh, Margaret Anderson Kelleher's campaign and they always need volunteers, they always need help, and I thought this is the best way for me to learn and understand this. And I can't tell you how blown away I was by all the women leaders who are active in politics in Minnesota. I had no idea. Uh, and it was a beautiful thing to watch and see and get to know many of these, these, these women 
who were making a difference for Minnesota. And I thought, I can do that. I, I have the skills. When the time is right, I'm going to do that. And so when the time was right, uh, I did run for New Brighton City Council, but um, lost by just a few votes. But it was a good test run. And um, but when our Senator uh, Goodwin decided to retire and our, our House member, um, Carolyn Lane, decided to run for Senate, they came to me and said, we want you to run for, for that House seat. And I said, OK, I'm ready. With your help and your your assistance, we can do this. And uh, I I jumped into the fray and haven't really looked back since then. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, I feel like there's never like this moment where you've just like prepared and you're organized, and now is the time. It's just like the opportunity arises, and you're like, this is something I'm passionate about, and I you know for myself, I'm like I don't really know you know exactly what this will entail, but I know it's something that I feel like I could be good at, and I know it's something I care about. And like you said, there are so many amazing women um, in leadership roles in Minnesota politics, and I have had the pleasure of living in Senate District 41, where we've had three amazing women uh, in Senator Lane, uh, Representative Bernardi, and and you um, as role models. So so yeah. Um, it's it's very daunting and and I think everyone kind of comes to it um, from a different angle but I don't I don't think I've talked with anybody who said yep I was completely prepared and knew that I you know would be completely qualified and I just did it um, yep. everyone just kind of you just jump in why did you decide after serving as representative uh, to run for the state senate how do you think that role will be different and why did you want to um, to serve in that that new role well, when, <clears throat> when, I, um, when Senator Lane called me and let me know that, that she was not going to run again for her seat, I was uh, a little, well, I was very unprepared for that, for that message. I didn't realize that that was, I thought she was going to be there for a couple more years and I'd get a couple more years under my feet at the house. Um, but I knew that um, this district uh, could continue having, again, a woman to lead them uh, and to look out for them. And I've learned some really good lessons at the legislature. I've been able to build good re uh, relationships, not just with in my own BFL caucus, but within the GOP caucus, but also across the, um, the street in this, with the senators. We can't, because we're a divided government right now, we have a majority in the House and a no, yeah, majority in the House and minority in the Senate, we need to have the buy-in of our senators in order to pass any kind of legislation. The House has to be uh, okay with it, the Senate has to be okay with it, and the governor has to be okay with it for it to get a bill to get to the, the governor's desk. And uh, so if I wanted to pass that missing and murdered bill, if I wanted to pass the buttocks bill, if I wanted to, um, uh, increase funding, equity funding for our four BIE um, schools. If, if I wanted to do any of that, I needed to get the buy-in from the senators. And I did. I went over there, I talked with them, I shared why it was so important. Um, and then also as a member of the Posse Caucus, we have so much work to do in Minnesota. We've been working day and night for the last, as, from the beginning of the month, um, since George Floyd was, was murdered on this incredible comprehensive public safety bill and, and policing re, uh, reform bill. 
there's so much there that needs to be done. And because I have um, built those relationships, because I have a good understanding of, of, of what some of these issues are, um, I felt that, that I could take those skills and those relationships and take them into the Senate so that we can be sure that, that our district and all of Minnesota is represented in a, in a good way. And um, very, very fortunate that um, our Senate district also had that kind of confidence in me and, and endorsed me at the level that they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, would you like to take a moment to talk about um, last evening, uh, the failure of the state Senate to pass the police reform bill package? Uh, that was very, very disappointing. Um, and unfortunately, uh, less surprising than it should be since there's just so much support for reform of our police uh, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Um, do you have any thoughts to share? Well, I, I can tell you we were disappointed and devastated. Uh, literally, our posse caucus has been working around the clock uh, since the death of George Floyd, putting together this very comprehensive set of uh, public safety and police reform legislation. And many people will say the world is watching us, and I believe they were. They were looking for Minnesota to step up boldly, to acknowledge that there are issues that need to be addressed, um, and to acknowledge that we have uh, tools in our tool belt to address those issues. It was really quite stunning that, um, but not surprising that the Senate uh, decided that they weren't going to go forward. Um, using the, we're not ready, it's not time for, it's not ready for prime time, so much work to continue working on these sort of things. Uh, they, set, they set that up early on by saying, we're leaving on Friday, we're done. And mm -hmm. so the willingness was not necessarily there. I know when, um, when our Chair Mariani went over to uh, confer with, with uh, Senator Gazelka yesterday afternoon, the Senator said, well, I haven't even looked at the bills. So I'm gonna have to look at them and get back to you. And I realize this guy's a busy guy. There's, there's much to be done, but honestly, you know, if, if I, as a teacher, as a library media specialist, if uh, I say, we're gonna, we're gonna get this done by the end of the week, here's a project, I need you to do it. And the kid comes to me on the day that it's due and says, oh, I haven't even looked at it, I'll get back to you. That would be totally unacceptable. And as an adult, mm -hmm. as a leader in um, the Minnesota state legislature, that is totally unacceptable. Yeah. Especially when we have the support systems around us to help us understand this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just shows that he wasn't taking it very seriously from the beginning. Not at all. Yeah, and, and it's frustrating because there are experts, you know, although that, you know, the, the, um, the killing of George Floyd precipitated this moment of focus on these issues, it's not like they haven't been important. It's not like experts haven't already been working on legislation like this. So to act as if all of this is just crazy out of the blue, nobody's ever conceived of such legislation is just extremely disingenuous. I, I would agree. In fact, uh, one of the, the bill that I carried in this package was uh, around um, an incident review team. So after there is a, a, a death by a police officer, uh, this 
review team is assembled and they review it and they look at what the what happened and what precipitated it and and all of those things and come out with recommendations this was a bill the nucleus of that bill uh, came from representative peter fisher who first started working on it back when jamar clark was killed and it went nowhere nowhere so these are not new ideas these are not new uh reform ideas or they're not out of the blue they're not like totally insurmountable these are really common sense we can do this and we can do it together pieces of legislation um but it's not something it's not a priority for for our gop senators mm -hmm. yeah well we'll just have to take back the senate in the fall i think um, so. and you'll be part of that new majority and we'll get something so. done so. Knock on wood. <laughs> great so um so what have you found most surprising about the experience of being a legislator? I think initially the most surprising was the lack of uh, bipartisan collaboration. And um, the role that being a, a majority plays in what kind of legislation we are going to address. When I was first elected uh, in the in the House, we were in the minority. The DFL was in the minority, and I had some pieces of legislation uh, around education, uh, within education, especially around um, some uh, uh, curriculum. That's what I'm looking for curriculum around opioid education, around um, sex trafficking those sort of things. And when I brought it to, to the chair, she just refused to hear it. And I found that that's basically the way it, it, it goes. Uh, if a chair, ha a chair goes in and they have an agenda, they've got their ideas of how they want the legislation coming out of that committee to be. And um, every now and then they might accept something else or you know waver a little bit on, on what goes through out of the goodness of their heart. But um, we really didn't see that uh, with the GOP in the majority and us in the minority. There really wasn't that sort of uh, that sort of collaboration. And I guess I'm also I was also surprised oftentimes by the disrespect um, that uh, certain legislators have for for others. If you remember back about four years ago. Um, our speaker Hortman coined a term, sorry, not sorry. Mm -hmm. um, I came in to the legislature with this incredible group of high energy, young, diverse, new legislators. They came in ready to go. And we've been told, you know, as a first year, you know, as a freshman legislator, you know, just sit back and listen, you know, and maybe after you get reelected the first time, then you can start working on on legislation and promoting it. And we all looked at them like they were speaking with three heads, you know, like, no, we came here to do the work right here, right now. And um, I would say that we were underestimated. We were ridiculed. Um, there was, there were number of incidents of inappropriate um, comments made to, to women legislators. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a real lack of regard for 
the DFL or the whole legislative process. I don't know if you remember when we were in the middle of a, a house uh, floor session and like half the floor over on the right side was empty. All of these legislators were sitting in the back room watching TV and playing cards hmm. when they should have been on the floor listening to the legislation. And I remember after uh, Susan Allen uh, shared an ex uh, extremely emotional, poignant story about her family and the struggles as American Indians. Um, and I was having a conversation with a, a legislator and I, I just said, you guys, that was so disrespectful. You're talking on the phones, you leave the floor, um, you just total disregard for it. And he said, well, if she had anything important to, to talk about, maybe I would have listened. Huh. I just found that appalling. I just, huh. you are there to listen and learn and legislate. And um, that's not what was happening. So th th that was probably, you know, the mm -hmm. biggest thing that I, I was so disappointed about. That seems so unnecessary. Like, it seems like we can all, you know, come in and agree that we have different worldviews and different opinions, um, but that everybody was elected by their community to represent them uh, in the state legislature as one body. So that that just seems really unfortunate. Uh, I remember I sat in on a committee hearing once uh, for a bill that I cared about. And I remember that one of the Republican legislators mocked a labor lawyer who had you know, poured his heart out and explained why you know, the bill under consideration would be really bad for workers. And, and he, was, he was mocked. And I was like, there just seems no, like that tone just seems very unnecessary. It, it just seems like we can all agree that we, we are not going to agree, but we can respect one another. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Just a few days ago, we were, um, we have a, a an economic stimulus or you know econ economic bill coming up and um part of that was a um like a little stimulus or a bump a one-time um bump uh to those mfip families once again mm -hmm. who are, are struggling and one of our um gop representatives referred to it as a um a welfare handout or a welfare giveaway. Uh, it just, you know, the lack of, of real empathy and concern for the struggle of folks without knowing it themselves is, is just so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I feel like it really does come from the top down, like uh, from the federal level and yes. a lot of rhetoric that's demonizing people for being poor instead mm -hmm. of empathizing with them and wanting to help them. Yeah. And, and, you know, that rhetoric, I feel like sometimes is um, as important as policies. I mean, it's all interrelated. But one of the reasons that I wanted to run for office was because of that rhetoric. Like I wanted to be someone who had a bigger voice in the community, um, speaking with empathy and inc about inclusivity. So, so yeah, that, that is just really sad. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that you're in the legislature with your, you know, life experience and your perspective to bring to that MFIB in particular. So thank you. Thank you. What advice do you have for new legislators, uh, which hopefully I will be in 2021? Hmm. Um, my, my first uh, piece would be uh, get to know those other legislators in our caucus ahead of time if you can. 
um, look them up on, on their Facebook page or their website, get to know what their issues have been in the past. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because when you, when you go forward with a piece of legislation, you're going to need to work that bill through the chair uh, of that, um, that committee. So if you have a piece on education, you're gonna take it to the education chair. If you have something around public safety, you're gonna take it to them. So find out what everybody's sort of specialty is and know who your go-to people are to get that done. Mm-hmm. So that would be the, the, the first thing. And then introduce yourself to folks. Tell them who, they, who you are or even do that ahead of time. You know, send them an email, send them a little letter or whatever. But introduce yourself and say, here are my issues, here are the things that I want to work on. Um, so get to know who you're working with. And that also does help with, the, with um, understanding on the other side of the aisle uh, what the specialties are for, from the GOP folks as well, and your senators. Because you will have to, and hopefully our, um, our DFL will take the majority in, in the Senate, but you still will need to work with a senator on the other side to make sure that your bill hits those the House, the, the Senate, and then, of course, to our governor. So that, that would be one thing I would um, also suggest. Uh, just know that they are long hours. There are times when you might wonder, why am I even here? I don't feel like I'm getting anything done. And then all of a sudden, something just connects and you're... You're on your way to committee hearings and your bill is moving and you're trying to strategize. Uh, So there's a lot of, you know, kind of up and down, slow, then quick, 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 uh, that sort of thing. And then uh, just realize that at the end of session, you know, like last yesterday, we were uh, basically in session from nine o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock this morning. Uh-huh. And so folks were in their offices that entire time, keeping social distance. I know there will be long, late hours. And I really have to hand it to legislators who have young families. Because mm-hmm. um, whoever is at home keeping things running uh, is, is owed a huge thank you. Many of our legislators uh, take a lot of hours away from their family to do this work. It's not easy for the legislator, for their children, for their partners or spouses. Um, but it is a reality. It's not a nine to five job, you know, mm-hmm. January to May or February to May. And then we're busy outside of it. It's not a part time job. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't had a break since since February or since 2016. <laughs> Honestly, it's just been go, 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 mm-hmm. go. So take care of yourself. Make sure you are getting rest and you're eating well and getting some good fresh air and exercise because you have to take care of yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when I'm asked by, by young attorneys, what, especially young female attorneys, you know, what, what is your advice for my career? Like what, what, what advice do you have? I always tell them to choose their partners wisely because the, the person that you decide to share your life with, and if you decide to have a family with, you know, that really impacts your career. Um, I know that I wouldn't have started a firm if I didn't have my husband being supportive and, you know, pulling at least his weight, if not more, uh, at home. Uh, but I do feel like um, 
the tables will have turned because he was the uh, legislative director for the ACLU of Minnesota for six years. And during those years, during the legislative session, and especially the end of session, when things were crazy, I was holding down the fort at home and he was at the legislature uh, all night. And so, so the tables will have turned. So he'll know what to expect and I'll know what to expect. Wow, um, that is a valuable experience to go into this with, yes. Yeah, I definitely know that it is, it is long hours. But it's kind of it's kind of how I'm hardwired. I don't really do downtime, so so uh, I I'm ready for it. I'm pretty excited about it. Obviously, I'm very very excited about this this opportunity, uh, which uh, hopefully I'll have. So I would like to end our conversation today. Since you are a librarian, uh, I would like to know if you have any book recommendations. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Um, what are you I, reading I, right now? Well, I am a library media specialist in a middle school. And so I have a huge bag of uh, books, well, two of them actually, that I brought home uh, that I'm reading middle school books so that I'm prepared for in the fall because I, I go back to, to and start the school year and then take a leave of absence uh, for the legislative session. Mm -hmm. um, if, as an adult, I think um, one of the most important books that you could be reading right now is The New Jim Crow Law. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, um, the New and, Jim Crow about mass incarceration. Yes, mm -hmm. yep. The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by uh, Michelle Alexander. Uh, the historical content and the um, level of information in that book is is just phenomenal. It's extremely painful to read in, in a way, but it's one of those books that everybody really absolutely should read. <laughs> and then um, uh, there's it was sort of interesting because I, in this um, bag of, of books that I brought home, I read a book called um, Saving Savannah. This is a middle school book, mm -hmm. um, Saving Savannah. And it is um, a book about a young African-American uh, girl who is, um, comes from a, a little bit of a, a, an upper class African-American family in Washington, DC um, back in the 1800s. And um, it's amazing because it, was, it takes place when they were having civil unrest in Washington, D.C., and um, it was during the time of suffrage as well. Mm -hmm. So um, she, she uh, finds herself in the middle of women's rights. It's the Red Summer, the anarchist um, bombings, and it's the story of this girl who, who even though she comes from upper class, has her roots in what is uh, it is all about um, to care for for everybody, no matter what their their uh, neighborhood that they live in. And, and so, I was reading that at the same time the we had civil unrest in South Minneapolis, and it was like I could smell the fires, I could hear the sounds, people running and chasing and that sort of thing. Only to find out it's a sequel to to another book uh, about huh. her mother. So I would say if you can uh, catch that book, Saving Savannah, um, that would be a good one as a middle school. 
And then a second middle school book that is my all-time favorite is the, the Marrow Thieves. And that is a fascinating book. It's um, sort of uh, post-apocalyptic, post-pandemic in, um, in the United States. And um, humanity had been destroyed through global warming. But now there's, you know, this even incredible link. Um, the indigenous people of North America are being hunted and harvested for their bone marrow because wow. that carries the key to recovering um, something that the rest of the population has lost. And wow, and this is middle grade? That sounds yeah. really intense. It's, it is, and it's, it's like an sur incredible survival book um, because there's all these different indigenous groups that are have had to go undercover because they're trying to collect them, almost put them into boarding schools for their own safety, but then they're stealing their, their marrow. And I won't tell you what they need the marrow for. You'll have mm -hmm. to read the book to find out. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, it's an incredible, um, really fascinating book. Um, and it's called The Marrow Thieves by um, Cherie Dimaline. And um, just good books. Yeah, I wrote that down. Um, I will read it with my children. Um, yeah. So so I have a middle grade recommendation as well. I don't know if you've read um, the Hello Neighbor series. Um, my son is in fourth grade and he just read it for his um, book club in school. It's very dark. Uh, it's called Hello Neighbor and there are three books and they're based on a video game. Uh, but the author, her name is Carly Ann West, and she's a young adult middle grade author. She just has a beautiful way with words. Like it's this, this story that shouldn't be as beautiful and like, are, it's just really fun read. Uh, so mm. I actually bought another book by her that she wrote for slightly older uh, young adults, and I'm reading that uh, called The Bargaining. So if you're looking for, it's very, very dark, uh, but it's very good. It's the Hello Neighbor series. Okay, I'm going to write that down. Cool. Yeah, I wrote down yours as well. Um, <laughs> I, I just finished reading um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, which I feel like I should have already read, but I'm, I'm so grateful to have read it because, um, you know, it was saying things that we all, you know, we all are kind of generally aware of systemic inequities, you know, of uh, racial inequality, but uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is just such a poet. Just again, like I'm just really drawn to beautiful writing and I feel like he just really immersed you in his life experience. And, and I'm really, I feel like I'm a better person for having read uh, his words. So, and I, I heard an interview with him recently where he said he actually was kind of optimistic, uh, even though the state of the world seems like anything but one to be optimistic about. He said that um, he was talking with his father, who was a civil rights activist in the 60s, and his father said he had never seen such a wide, such a broad coalition of people really coming together uh, around issues of racial justice and police yeah. reform. And so, um, so it's nice to, to know that the, the people that we respect whose um, voices need to be elevated within the, the Black community are seeing this as an opportunity to hope for a better world and, and hope for real action. Uh, and I'm just so grateful to be a candidate for office um, at this moment when things can feel so dark. Uh, I know that it's made me feel very empowered uh, in my own life and in my community to feel like I can actually be part of the solution. 
And I would just like to, as we end, take this opportunity again to thank you for your leadership and your voice in the, the legislature. And uh, if all goes well in November, I'm really excited to, to be stepping into your seat and to be collaborating with you uh, in the Minnesota state government. So thank you so much. Oh, I, uh, I, you are welcome. And our community is welcome and Minnesota is welcome. I've been um, and you'll find out you've been given um, a very incredibly um, important task to represent not just our communities, but the communities across Minnesota. And you are an immigration lawyer. And the, the stories that you're going to bring to the legislature, the problems and the solutions that you have experienced are going to be so valuable as we go forward. Um, hopefully creating good legislation, license for all, um, hip hip hooray for the new DACA decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of those things are so important to have uh, the experience and the understanding. Again, empathy, we use empathy a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, we, we thank you for stepping up and being willing to, to take the, the burden of our society as well as we Move forward to hopefully make it uh, communities in a state where everyone um, has the ability and the opportunity to, for a healthy, happy life. Because at the end of the day, that's all we want for everybody, right? A healthy, happy life. Yes, yes. Everyone deserves a life of dignity. Yep. Great. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Our music by Pierce Murphy is licensed by Creative Commons and our technical director is Nathan West. Thank you so much for listening.